Hi, everyone. I am uh, so happy that I get to be with you today. Uh, my name is Carmen Rojas, and I'm the president and CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation. And I'm really so excited to be here with Ricky Manasala, executive director of the New York Foundation. And we are here to talk to you about how we have developed our voice um, in moral leadership. And that's kind of a broad, um, uh, a broad umbrella for this conversation, but um, I think that we both had pretty uh, interesting, relevant experiences, both to our moment and to our sector that might be helpful for folks who are navigating organizational change, social change, and our political and economic moment. Um, Ricky, I actually, I would love for you to share a little bit about the New York Foundation before I jump into questions, before we start our conversation. That sound good? Sounds great. Thanks, Carmen. And great to be with you and everyone else uh, here with us today. Thanks for making the time to connect with us. Um, albeit virtually, hopefully in person again soon. Um, so again, I'm Ricky Mananzala. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I work with the New York Foundation, which is one of the oldest supporters of community organizing in New York City and New York State. We were founded in 1909 and been a steadfast supporter of racial, economic, and gender justice organizing and movement building uh, in the city. And just fun fact, I'll get into this a little bit uh, in a moment. Um, I'm a former grantee of the New York Foundation. I'm a grassroots organizer at heart and really um, so happy to come full circle and um, having the trust in my leadership to run the foundation. I love that. I, we, uh, we were just, for folks who are uh, new to this conversation, uh, in the run-up to this, you know you have an agenda and you have the set of questions and then you have the five minutes before a panel starts where um, all of that gets adjusted based on quick insights. And so um, I am also a former grantee of Marguerite Casey Foundation and it got me thinking about um, sort of the role of transition and leadership, right? Like we both transitioned out of organizations into organizations. We've both transitioned from being grant recipients into philanthropic institutions. Um, I am about 15 months in, you are about six, six months, Ricky? Not even three. <laughs> I should have mentioned that, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's it, man, that's, that's my relationship. <laughs> um, um, what are some of the lessons like early you'll do early and I'll do mid early about transitions and I and you made this point in the pre session about making the transition from being um, a grant recipient and an organizer, uh, a leader in social movements to being a leader in philanthropy and what are the tensions that that's presented for you and then I'll go next. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a real, um, we were talking about challenges in general in our sector. I think for me, um, and I'll steal your your words, Carmen, and the Marguerite Casey Foundation's words, and um, it's been very jarring in what you call the say-do gap, right? So coming from being an organizer, being on the front lines, um, in protests, doing direct actions, building leadership in communities and, and building power, um, and then going into philanthropy and this say-do gap, in other words, um, when we're seeing the statements, uh, most notably now, this happens every, during every move, movement moment where we see a lot of statements in philanthropy um, purporting to support those on the front lines and their calls for racial justice. Of course, last, last June with the support um, for movements um, around the murder of George Floyd and police um, reform movements um, hitting 
um, an all-time high again, uh, lots of statements. Um, and then what we see is then the gap, right? So what's the gap? There's what's the doing? How are we seeing resources moving to where they're needed most? Um, and to the issues that um, philanthropy doesn't always want to touch. And in this case, I'm referencing um, police reform work uh, and racial justice work and liberation more broadly. So I think that's been the biggest challenge for me in making that move, going from doing the work to then having to resource the work and seeing um, some peers really following through with what they say um, and others really struggling to do so for a variety of reasons um, and not feeling satisfied with the um, reasons for uh, the gap between what we say and what we do. And I think why I'm excited to bring this up to this particular audience today is that you all here, no matter what kind of institution you're in, philanthropic, nonprofit, advocacy, um, social entrepreneurship, if you're a communicator, you're telling the stories, you are somewhere in the process helping to shape not only what your institution says, but more importantly, following through um, by showing how to close that gap between what we say and what we do. So. Um, to your question, I think the, the, that say-do gap for me has been the biggest challenge in coming from organizing into philanthropy, and I think we can close it. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm one, you know, I love a, a shout out to Marguerite Casey Foundation. I'm going to take that. And uh, couldn't agree more. I, I've, um, I have been thinking for me in this role, the most jarring thing about leadership is uh, how much we spend time in foundations, uh, specifically like analyzing, naming, like problematizing the problem and not narrating the possible solution. And I've been thinking a lot about um, mm -hmm. Robin D.G. Kelly's Freedom Dreams mm -hmm. and how we as a sector, how foundations oftentimes create the constraints within which leaders on the front lines can dream and start to build a possible future. And we do that by like burying people in bureaucracy, by mm -hmm. you know, uh, asking for two year results for 200 year problems. Uh, we do that by uh, expecting one person, one organization to be able to confront state and economic power uh, in a short period of time. In fact, we do that by um, not creating a true container about what's possible. So actually giving people the right amount of money. So I don't mm. know if you've had the experience, but like when I first started at Marguerite Casey Foundation, one of the things, you know, like the burn, uh, when I was raising money for Workers Lab, I always had this burn and my biggest burn was never knowing how much money I was gonna get from a foundation. And it always felt um, like wizardry, like going to Hogwarts. It was like some wizardry. <laughs> That's how the money was decided. It was like an organization with the same amount of staff, the same budget, the same everything would either get hundreds of thousands of dollars more or hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars less without clarity of time. And so um, for me, I've been thinking about like how we reduce the bureaucracy in service of freedom dreams. Mm -hmm. Like how do we get rid of these things that we've made up in service of actually giving people the money that we can give them. So we started funding at the tipping point for up to five years and mm -hmm. nobody, like you look on our website, if you're gonna get money from us, you do that calculation. And I think that that frees people up and the greatest lesson for me or like the jar and the transition was frankly how easy it was to do that. That mm -hmm. like, um, that that was a, 
that was always an option. It was like something that was available, is available to all of us mm -hmm. all the time. Um, and that it's not, uh, it's not the norm. <laughs> not right. Like that for me is like, wow, like we, it was pretty easy. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I have some similar ref reflections. We're joking. I'm not even three months in, but because I've been so familiar with the foundation for a long time, um, you know, I know some of the reasons why we get stuck in the ways of doing things that don't serve us anymore, that aren't aligned with our values at the most simplest levels. Sometimes it's actually just, well, that's how we've always done things, or that's just how the sector does things. And we've taken for granted that like, we could tomorrow completely change something that is actually fairly easy um, and yet very problematic that it, it remains as a, as a philanthropic practice. We're thinking about that a lot at the New York Foundation. We're almost 120 years old, right? Yeah. So thinking from the full spectrum of things that I think philanthropy has been called to do, especially over the last year in this window of opportunity around philanthropic transformation, it's the simplest things, right? The grantee burden work that we're trying to reduce, um, making processes of receiving money, like you just said, way more transparent, right? Ultimately, what I think we're saying about this is not just the bureaucratic elements, but it's about shifting power between philanthropy and the grassroots. That's what really motivates me when I hear you talk and the way that you're leading at the Marguerite Casey Foundation um, is that there are ways um, to run philanthropy that are not stuck and outdated and archaic and um, let's call it what it really is, like white supremacist ways of thinking about how resources should flow to communities. Um, and so if we have, going back to this point of moral leadership, um, I see it not just myself, I think it's the rest of our staff, it's our board, it is how are we thinking about um, what our purpose is, who we're accountable to, and then everything else should, should shift um, around that purpose. Um, one thing I wanna uplift, and maybe it's like the Carmen and Marguerite Casey Foundation like party that I'm having for you right now, but is the way we talked about how you're, how you're shifting the role of a program officer. Mm -hmm. It seems so simple. When you all put out the new job description for hiring a new program officer for the foundation, a series of them, I believe, um, you said, hey, we're rethinking this role. It's gonna go away from one of surveillance, monitoring and evaluation to one of mobilizing resources, right? So your role as a program officer isn't to check in, get do all the reporting and make sure grantees are following through on their outcomes. Um, that stuff is gonna happen because you trust the grantees. You wanna learn, of course, but actually your job as a program officer is gonna shift to leveraging more resources with other funders for these groups. I was so moved by that. Mm -hmm. And it returns me back to, it seems so simple, but it returns back to the moral leadership and accountability. What is our role in philanthropy? I'm crystal clear about that. I come to this work as a former organizer. My, um, my accountability, my moral leadership, that compass is crystal clear. And that is to the grassroots and that is the power building. Even if my institution and my role has changed, which if you asked me 20 years ago, if I would be sitting in the seat as the executive director of a funder that used to support my work, I would have told you you were bananas. <laughs> that being said, I think my moral leadership and crystal clear compass is to the grassroots and power building. And so I need to take that with me into philanthropy. And I think one great example, the way you're doing that at the Marguerite Casey Foundation, among many examples, is the way you're rethinking the role of the program officer. Oh, I love this. Again, I do, I do love a Marguerite Casey Foundation. <laughs> I will say this, like, there were a couple of things um, in like from a narrative communications place that were important lessons. One, I was afraid to change the job. Uh, mm -hmm. I knew the job needed to change because 
Um, I've had amazing program officers and horrible program officers. And it was like winning a lottery or like getting evicted. The, like the, the, the bridge between the two was so great. Um, and my most amazing program officers always helped me raise more money. Like hmm. their added value they saw was um, actually uh, creating room for me to be in connection with others uh, and making it easier for me to raise money. And so when we launched, when we did the internal work of changing the job, job description, we didn't think anybody was gonna apply for the job, mostly because we're told, I think that program officers like that control, right? Like that there's mm -hmm. a, uh, there's a sense that they, that program officers have historically used uh, their role as broker between organization and institution, mm -hmm. between organization and foundation um, as one of power. And Ricky, we got like 350 applications. Like, wow, we, I'm not surprised. Like, yeah. um, it was so, uh, it was really amazing to see one, like the, the interest, but two, that like people weren't afraid of raising money for organizations because mm -hmm. most people do that as a part of their job. It's just not recognized within institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I, 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 again, love a shout out and happy to share, <laughs> to share more about yeah. the position. Yeah. Well, I'm seeing Jackie Rodriguez in, in the chat saying that the Healthy Communities Foundation is dropping the term officer. And I'm, I'm loving that. We got to take that a step further. And I think even the way we're talking about the role of this particular position, it's you're an organizer, you're a mobilizer, right? And, and as long as you're crystal clear about your purpose, right, you're not just institution building. Yes, you work for this foundation. You're not just working in service of its mission and strategy, although it's a piece of your job. Um, but beyond that, you're, you're a mobilizer. And, and you know, I think the um, when I think again about my my roots as an organizer, um, I'm I'm really clear that there's a lot about philanthropy and this this window of opportunity we have to transform it. Um, I don't I don't want it to close, Carmen, and I'm kind of concerned that it is. And I'm wondering what you think about that and what I mean by this window of opportunity or transformation. I people I see people in the chat saying during COVID, here's all the things we started to change and realized, gosh, this is archaic. It was so simple to eliminate it. Why were we doing this in the first place? That consciousness has been there for the past year, year and a half, and I'm concerned we're kind of returning back to some of our so-called standard operating procedures, back to the practices that don't serve movement. And I'm wondering how you think we keep that, use our leadership and our platforms um, to keep that window of opportunity open. I you know. I mean, this is why being on, be having this conversation with you here is important. I. Um, uh, oftentimes, the communications role within organization. Mm -hmm being wholly tactical and transactional. I'm going to hear what you say, and I'm going to find all of these ways to say it in different ways out in the world. And I love your framing, Ricky, which is like, not only is it uh, taking these ideas and making them available to the rest of the world, but holding a mirror to the institution mm -hmm. so that we're not only saying all of these things, that we can hold ourselves accountable for doing these things. Mm. Uh, for me, um, I see our role at Marguerite Casey as continuing to shine the light, like continuing to shine the light on both the opportunity and these freedom dreams, like the people on the ground who every day are doing the work, you know, like right, I'm in this ARPA obsession, I like the biggest federal mm -hmm. government investment we'll ever see, chances are we have ever seen to date. Um, 
I see our job as like making sure that people in philanthropy, that my peers, that other people at foundations can't turn away from this opportunity and can't believe that their organization or that our sector alone can actually solve some of these intractable problems, that we actually need a functioning mm -hmm. democracy to do that. And there are people who are working actively to dismantle our democracy. Mm -hmm. And so I see our role as both uh, both and, and on the communications front, I think it's naming the thing, like the say do gap, right? Like it, mm -hmm. um, there, it's just like the, it's the truth, you know, yeah. like if you look at my, I always had this marker when I was, when I ran workers lab about like the difference between the picture on people's websites and who their board and leadership was and the huge gap. And that's like, just represent like representative, uh, racial representation, not even like ideological representation, not even like on any of this. Mm. Um, I was always so struck that people were, that people who ran organizations felt very comfortable having young black faces all over their website and not one black person on their board, mm. not one black person in a position of leadership, not one black person informing a strategy within the organization. And I feel like we need to um, empower and name for communications professionals that it's above and beyond um, narrating and more holding accountable, that they can be like powerful stewards of accountability. You buy that? Mm -hmm. I buy it. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, there was a lot there um, and I'm seeing some things in the chat that are that we're going to riff off of in a second, too. And. First, I just want to make sure people know the answer, the uprising um, kind of pledge and, and call to action around philanthropy that you put out. I put it in the chat. It's, it's, it's talking about the say-do gap that we've already been talking about quite a bit. I um, mean, I think the thing I want to uplift around this say-do gap is this isn't new, right, about our sector, right? Every time there's a movement moment, like I said, we see an influx of statements and sometimes resources. Although you may have seen recently the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equities recent report on um, the say do gap as well, right? All these commitments for racial justice funding in word, but not necessarily in action, right? So I would encourage people to check out PRE and their report um, called Mismatched. Um, that being said, I think what we saw around the uprisings of 2020, we saw earlier in 2013 and 2014 around Ferguson, right? Yeah. And so we saw a huge commitment and then we saw a very quick retraction about a year or two later from private, uh, from philanthropy in general. Um, but I would say specifically private private philanthropy, seeing that public foundations and um, social justice intermediaries were largely carrying the burden of moving money to movements um, while there was um, a decrease in resources um, after the movement moment subsided. So I see our role as very much keeping that window open and getting all sectors of philanthropy um, to follow through on the commitments they made around funding racial justice um, work. I wanna get to, um, this question that's in the chat um, that I think um, Tanya Barriento sh shared, would love to hear more about how you might be adjusting to calm slip up the voices of the people you serve rather than the executives of philanthropy or the foundation. I think this is a real question and I, and I thank you for that, Tanya, because it's something I'm grappling with as a, as a new executive of a foundation where I think I'm called to um, be a more public presence that, and that is quite honestly not in my wheelhouse. Um, again, I'm gonna keep le leaning on my organizer roots. I think about my leadership, one of the best qualities of an organizer and leadership is that you develop other leaders. That being said, um, I know that I need to use my platform, but more importantly, the platform of the foundation 
to not only call for the sector transformation that's necessary, but using making sure we're uplifting the variety of voices, not just my own, not just the other staff and board, but the folks in the field. And I would actually invite, maybe they're already in the chat already, um, Kareem Alston, who's our former um, communications director at the New York Foundation is here, also works for ComNet now. Um, and then um, Maggie, who is our communications uh, manager is with us currently. Um, they have led our communications work at the New York Foundation, which has been fairly quiet um, um, in its history over the past almost 120 years when talking about what we believe about mm -hmm. philanthropy and have, and have instead centered the voices of the grassroots and all of our communication strategies. Uh, I think that's what we will continue doing. We're gonna elevate that more and letting um, communities speak for themselves about their power building and uplifting that work in general, but for the purposes of leveraging more resources for, for community organizing and racial and gender justice work in particular. That being said, we need to start dipping our toe into the water a little bit more as a foundation and using our platform to not only uplift the work of groups on the ground, which will remain our heart and soul, um, but to use the platform we have to talk about the philanthropic transformation that is necessary if we really want to fund movements like we want them to win. So I would invite Maggie and Kareem to share any nuggets of of, um, of uh, brilliance that I know you have for how we've been thinking about that with the New York Foundation mm. uh, in the chat. I wish you could just jump in and start talking with us, but they, they've really led that strategy for us. Um, and, and the value that we're leading with, like letting people tell their own stories from a place of empowerment rather than us telling the stories for them from a place of, of weakness or charity. Mm. This has been like a really tough thing for us uh, at Marguerite Casey in this moment of transition. Like we, um, it's so funny, uh, in the transition, I think Prior to my starting, we had a magazine that we would um, share broadly um, that highlighted the work of organizations, but frankly, just like moved around organizations. And I always have this question about in this position at this organization, who, what resources do I have at my disposal and who do I have access to that I otherwise wouldn't have? Um, and that's just like a true, uh, imbalance of power and resource. And over the last 15 months, um, well, actually I'm gonna start here. I am at a point of inflection where I feel like over the last 15 months, we as an organization, I as a leader, Jonathan Jays Green, as our VP of programs have really prioritized um, like resetting an organizational voice uh, and I do think, um, I don't know this, but I feel like I would give us like a C, a C plus maybe at bringing our grant recipients into that process. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly, um, mostly because we're still getting to know each other, mostly because we yeah. said all of my excuses, like I have uh, like tactical excuses, which is like the time that we started was one in like, we just haven't traveled. We haven't met many of mm -hmm. our grant recipients. We don't have that kind of relationship. And I feel like um, we have a rule at Marguerite Casey where like we won't engage grant recipients in anything unless we pay them for it. So like, mm -hmm. I think it's, we give people $2,500 for an engagement. They come to a staff, they do a talk with me, whatever they do, like they get compensated for that. And I wanna make sure that we're like making the best use of people's time. And I am, uh, it's not clear to me yet that the I, this is maybe a cop out, but I'm just gonna be honest, like this is a grappling that I'm having, like the, 
the resources that we have and the access that we have is actually helpful to the power that uh, movement leaders are trying to shift. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, like I see my job as raising money too. Mm -hmm. Like everybody at Marty Casey's job is to raise money for the leaders who we want to support, uh, who mm -hmm. um, really, who we think actually can be at the forefront of transforming um, uh, conditions for people in this country. And I think that like, I'm at a grappling point about um, is, is it us or is it them or how do we do this together? And it's frankly yeah. like um, the struggle of COVID and the time of transition in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like I love your framing and I love that you all have been doing it for so long, centering grant recipients. I wonder what you have learned from that. Like what has been helpful and what hasn't been helpful? Yeah, I mean, I, and I know I'm seeing like Kareem's a little bit in the chat box as our former communications director. I think I know Maggie's going to chime in too, but Kareem, if you're there and can share that link, that lesson from even some of the storytelling that you did, I think maybe two years ago at ComNet on this exact question, right? So how are we uplifting the voices in a way that's aligned with our values of empowerment and, and, and showing people in a position of real empowerment versus charity and um, uh, weakness. And so if you can drop that in the chat box, Kareem, that would be awesome um, as one lesson to share with folks. Um, and then, you know, I, I think we're still figuring things out. A lot of this is actually connected back to a question I see in the chat box um, from Amanda Stanley about, okay, been in philanthropy for a while, I'm now back on the nonprofit side. It's great that we're trying to shift the power dynamic, but is between grants, uh, grant recipients, which by the way, Carmen, I noticed you say grant recipients instead of grantees, and I wanna know a little bit more about that. I bet there's a story there. So put a pin in that one. Um, but the power dynamic between nonprofits and funders. Yes, we're like tinkering around the edges, but I think what I'm reading in Amanda's question is how far can that really go? Can power actually really be shifted? Um, and I, when I answer your question around like, so how have we uplifted the like voices of, of grantees or grant recipients? Um, I think we in part let them tell their own stories, but I still think at the end of the day, we have more power than they do in terms of access to resources. Um, so the way in which we're telling stories or uplifting that work, um, at the end of the day is still veil be behind this veil of power, um, even if we are, are trying to shift it, right? So how do we choose some voices to uplift versus others? Um, there's a power dynamic there. Um, who becomes the grantee darling that we know that, that exists within philanthropy? So Amanda, I don't have an easy answer to this question, but I think it's the right one to be asking, like how far can we push the sector to transform itself, not to just ease the burden on grantees, not to just um, give away more money, although that's a big part of it, increasing payout, which is something we're very interested in doing at the New York Foundation beyond the minimum that's required. Yes, those things are helpful and important and do shift some aspects of power, but at the end of the day, um, I still believe that's tinkering around the edges. So Carmen, like, what's up? Do you think, what do you think's possible? Well, I have a, uh, I believe that philanthropy is the opposition. So I am clear that foundations are the worst expression of racialized capitalism. Like I, I'm like clear, I'm honest, I'm clear about my job uh, in that. And that um, I, I see us kind of on a, um, on like a, a seesaw. And like most people are like, I just wanna stay right here in the seesaw and I wanna move us to right here. So like one, those are my beliefs about philanthropy and foundations. I believe that organizations need to organize uh, in opposition to philanthropy. 
Like mm -hmm. in any other sector, we ask uh, leaders of organizations to organize against political leaders, against uh, corporations, against people who are day-to-day -day shaping their reality. And for some reason, foundations are off the table. And then when people organize against foundations, it's seen as, it's seen as taboo. It's seen as the edge. I think it's really problematic that we narrate the role of philanthropy as a part of social movement ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think it's true. I think that what we do yep. is move resource. Like our mm -hmm. job is to raise money and move money. Everything else is ancillary. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to give as much money as possible if we believe in the freedom, if we believe yep. in freedom. That's right. Um, Our role is to resource movements. We are not the movement. And I think that, and I, this actually gets, maybe this will help me unpack recipient with you and at this point of grant recipient versus grantee, but I'll throw into the mix that's related to this question of, of power and shifting power, like a naming power, more importantly, to start the power dynamic that's there is why I don't say partner. Yeah. I don't refer to groups on the ground that we're supporting with resources as a partner, because that's not, that to me hides uh, the actual relationship that's there and the power dynamic that is not equal. Yeah. And so maybe grantee is not the right word. I'm curious why you say recipient and if it's related to this this piece here, right? It's not about ownership. Yeah, it's like, it's so like, transactional. It's just like it's true. Right. Like it's people we give grants to. Like mm -hmm. um, so really early when I saw, and when I was like just out of grad school, I had a job at a foundation and somebody was like, don't call me a grantee. It makes me feel lesser than. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's just like super helpful. Thanks for giving yeah. me that feedback. And since yeah. then, I was like, oh, that's like an easy adjustment. That's an easy adjustment to move from like uh, diminutive to actual, like mm -hmm. to the transaction that's happening. Um, I think that if foundations tomorrow ceased existing, people would still find ways to organize. Yeah. People would that's still right. find ways to fight. And right now, what we do is in a like deeply uneven terrain as like a leftist is to create mm -hmm. some more evenness against mm -hmm. the right, you know, for a future that I believe is possible. Mm -hmm. But I don't, um, I think it's a trick. I, you know, mm -hmm. I, this is like a, how is it like a hot take? My hot take is around trust. Like I don't, yeah. I don't need our grant recipients to trust me. I don't need them to trust us. I'm not gonna spend time in that. I'm going to be as transparent and accountable as possible. Mm -hmm. That like mm -hmm. the relational, um there there's like a whole i'm so glad we're doing this and this in this conversation that comment like there's a, a body of language that is deeply about um how we fall in love with each other which is hard to do when you want to fight each other and you need to fight to take somebody down yeah. and we have to imagine a world where philanthropy isn't the sole way that we fund the contestation for power in this country yeah. And um, I don't, I think like the language, the relational language makes it difficult for people to imagine organizing against. I feel like people should be organizing against us. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, yeah. I, I do. Yeah. I think that we would be better uh, if I was clear. And I think that there's something, and I wonder what you think about this, like our proximity from uh, coming from running organization to running a philanthropic organization. Like, again, mm. I feel it, I, I name it like my fire yeah. inside, like the, mm. <laughs> the things that always burned me up um, that make it possible for me to imagine mm. a world without foundations uh, mm. in a way that I think most of our peers can't. It's like yeah. impossible. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I've been thinking a lot. Uh, I feel like hopefully this is not a little uh, all over the place, but it's getting me thinking about as more as I'm seeing this trend of more former organizers coming into philanthropy with that mindset that I talked about when we started, right? You're crystal clear about your accountability. It's always to the grassroots role has just changed as a resource mobilizer, right? You're just more, you're organizing other funders, you're organizing your institution. Um, and when I was at Borealis Philanthropy, helping to start it several years ago, we went from a small team to a team of more than 30 of, uh, as a social justice grant maker. Um, when I was responsible for hiring program officers, I always looked for people with no experience for the most part in philanthropy that come out of organizing because one, they remember what it's like um, to do the work um, and they understand what it was like to fundraise <laughs> and they understand um, that they need to be, they're part of their role is to continue organizing and now just a different kind of institution and in a different role. I'm wondering though, like, does that come at a cost, right? Like with more organizers, right? I'm not telling people they can't do whatever they want professionally. Sometimes they wanna take a break from organizing. I had a unanticipated path into this role. Like I said, I never was actually planning to be in philanthropy. I just saw this as a place for me to make a contribution, even though this isn't my only movement work. But I'm wondering what you think about more and more organizers coming into philanthropy. Is it a good thing? I think yes. Does it come at a cost? And as we're thinking, I'm looking at some other questions in the chat box as people that are seeing themselves um, in a variety of roles um, in, in this sector, whether it's philanthropy or advocacy, no matter when you're in your leadership or you're just finding your voice um, uh, in an, as a new person in an organization, how are we thinking about moral leadership purpose no matter where you sit um, in the organization? And I see there's a, an anonymous attendee asked this question um, in the Q&A box. Any advice for people earlier in their careers who aren't in leadership roles but still want to do everything they can to make a change? So I guess to you, it's a two-part question. What do you think about organizers coming into philanthropy and playing that role? And then no matter where you're coming out of, um, like how do you think about um, kind of change and um, moving change within your institution? Um, I think it's a good thing for a couple of reasons to have organizers to come into philanthropy. And like the primary one is to call bullshit. It's like to mm -hmm. say, oh, there aren't, there aren't enough resources. We can't give people enough grants to pay a living wage. We can't like um, to be able to, I spent too long of my very young early career with um, one of the reasons I got a PhD was because I, um, I believed that there were like certain people who just knew more, who should have more power mm -hmm. over the state of my community because that's what the nonprofit philanthropic sector taught me early on. And the moment I got a job, I was like, oh, I did, I was, I was the same smart then as I am now. I know I like, I was the same person then as I am now. And I think coming into philanthropy helps sort of bring down the heat of the, um, the rules and norms and like bring up the heat on the possibility and dreams, right? Like mm. money is like the, an animating force for me, like how much people get paid. And I think that we aren't, uh, the fact that many people in philanthropy are okay, you know, as the leader of a foundation, making 10, 20 times more than your lowest paid staff, making 30 times more than an ED at an organization, making 50 times more than an organizer at an organization. Mm -hmm. 
And that is not that that's not an issue that we're willing to contend with. Um, having more organized in philanthropy makes that possible. And I just that's Jesse Beeson here at uh, Northwest mm -hmm. Foundation has been like really trying to organize and push folks on mm -hmm. this. And I think it's an important question. And yeah. so I think it's a good thing for that. Um, I think we need to imagine our way out. Like I think um, uh, I'm just thinking about portals to the future, you know, uh, what is the portal to the possible future? This is the in-between time. And I think we need to imagine like what we're going to do um, when foundations don't exist anymore, when we don't need uh, an under-resourced atrophied nonprofit sector to provide housing, to provide food, to provide education for people. And I think this portal for a possible future, we can start to do the experimentation necessary. Um, your second question, I'll be quick. Like I, um, again, I feel like I spent the last 15 months like resetting our external work, our external vision, our external voice at Marguerite Casey Foundation. And I'm um, getting the insight that I've missed an opportunity, which I think is the true opportunity of running a foundation in this moment, mm -hmm. is to actually build an organization of the future, mm -hmm. to build a workplace that is truly liberated, where people feel, feel fulfilled, um, where uh, management is seen as a sacred vocation. And like to your earlier point, like it's your job mm -hmm. to, to support leaders to become leaders, you know, mm -hmm. like to create that space. Uh, I think uh, progressive foundations have a real opportunity to be the standard bearer for um, what justice at work looks like, because these are jobs, you yeah. know, like we have the gift of getting to do jobs that are well resources on the issues that we love and care about, but they're jobs nonetheless, like we, you can get fired, I can get fired, everybody can get fired, we've seen that happen in, in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And so how do we seize this opportunity to build organization that's true to the future that we want? And that's really, um, as I think about moral leadership, what I feel like is the clarion call that I need to listen to in this moment. Hmm. What about yeah. you? Like, what do you think about organizing? And what do you think about like this question of moral leadership? Yeah, I think that I agree with you on, on the organizers. Uh, and it's not a zero sum game. Like we lose someone from organizing that goes into philanthropy. It's, it's not that, although someone gave me that feedback, like stop poaching all the organizers and bringing them over to philanthropy. I was like, they're making these choices on their own. And I hear what you're saying, yeah. which is um, it's, it's assuming that philanthropy is still movement work, which for, I know this is a, maybe a controversial thing to say. For me, it is not, um, but it is still an important place to bring my movement contributions and values. Um, with, with that kind of accountability in mind. I think this question in the Q&A that I think you got at too, but, but I'll take a, a shot at, which is for people that are early in their careers who aren't in leadership roles, but still wanna do everything they can, like how, what advice do we give? First, I don't give advice. <laughs> um, I can talk from experience. But one thing I learned as I was growing, um, when you're talking about positional power, you still have power in your organization, even if you're um, maybe not the ED or a director or in management. Um, but finding the power that you do have um, is important and acknowledging that, that there, it is there. But I think for me, when I was growing in an organization, I asked questions, I listened, I had, why are things this way, right? And often when you're asked those simple questions and someone has a thin answer, it begins to like point out to others and obviously not in necessarily divisive ways, um, by asking questions, listening and having people make sense of why things the way they are opens up the possibility for maybe they don't need to be this way, maybe there's a better way. So that would be some of my initial reflection on 
the simplest place I started to find my voice and to be a part of the change in an organization. Um, I think the second piece is also what I said when I started, define accountability to yourself, right? Who are you accountable to? It's not just, yes, you are a job. This is your employer. You have some obligations to your job description. Yes. But what's your purpose and what's your accountability? And stay steadfast in that. Um, so you may grow in positional leadership. You may grow uh, or in positional power. You may grow in other ways. Um, but as long as you maintain that accountability, and particularly if you're in philanthropy, which it can be an enticing place to steer away from accountability because it's it can be intoxicating, right? Yeah. Like you are given power and resources, and you need to remember they are not yours, and and uh, you have an, your accountability is defined, and so all your actions should be driven by that. Whether you're a communicator, you're a funder, um, uh, you're a program associate, or you're the executive director, if that is not crystal clear, then I think it's easy to get lost. Um, I wanna, I wanna, I know we're getting to time. There's probably more um, questions in the chat box we need help getting through. Um, but I'm wondering, Carmen, on who we are as leaders in our identities. I would say we're probably rare. Um, there's not a lot of other philanthropic leaders that come from our lived experience. Um, and so for myself, I, I, um, I'll spare you the fun stories of even my first two months on the job and, and meeting with people who didn't expect my <laughs> face to show up on the Zoom screen when they asked for a meeting, yeah. literally. Yeah. I did not expect you to look like this. Maybe they didn't mean to say that, but they couldn't help themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think what they were saying is maybe I was younger than they anticipated, although I'm probably older <laughs> than you think, um, that I'm as a queer and transgender person, I don't see myself reflected in roles like uh, at the foundation executive level as a person of color and beyond. Um, and I think while representation matters, that's not all of it, but I do wanna just uplift right now, we are people of color and executive leadership roles. This sector was not built for us. What are your what are your reflections on stepping into these roles with so many so so many eyes on us and expectations um, for us to be, um, you know, a transformative leader uh, for a sector like I said that's not built for us. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go back to something that you said. Uh, I see my job as organizing more money for people on the front lines of the fight for a future, and like I don't, I just don't. Um, I have like an amazing, very small group of friends and a mom who loves me so much. <laughs> and that's like, it's like so heart sustaining. And so all of the other trappings for me just don't feel real. Um, don't feel, and I will say this, like I was a young person in philanthropy. Like my first job out of graduate school was at a foundation. And um, I feel like we met, we met uh, in real life then um and i was bad i was like a bad program officer i was like i was like look at all this money everybody thinks i'm so smart everybody thinks i'm so nice i'm the funniest person in the yeah. world well I, you want my opinion here's my opinion you want my advice let me give it to you tenfold um i uh i'm really glad that that was my experience early on um because then i got fired from that job hmm. And it was such a helpful, like, oh, that's not your money. You need to like, you need like a reset for yourself, friend. Um, you confuse relationship with transaction. And like the best thing that I could do in any role that I had where money was the thing was make the money easily available to people. Mm -hmm. 
Like that, that was the job. It wasn't like going to dinner and having drinks with people. It wasn't like wasting people's time on a telephone call, mining their genius or like picking their brain. Um, it wasn't any of that stuff. And I'm glad that that was sort of my uh, early turn. I And so I come into this job feeling like this is the job. This is my job right now. Mm -hmm. This yeah. won't be the job that I have forever. This won't be the job that defines my contribution, but it is the job that I have right now. And I come back to your point, like I'm accountable to people who don't have power in this country. And if every day I can like start the day reminded of that, end the day, being able to point to the one, two, three things that I did, um, that just like brings that like makes it easier for me to like uh, to think about accountability. But this thing that you your answer to this question, um, I think you're right. Like that questions create so much space and a lot of the leadership, a lot of philanthropy is about certainty. Here's this thing that mm -hmm. we studied and learn and know, and this is how hmm. you should do your work. And hmm. I just don't, I don't think that there's a silver, silver bullet to white supremacy or patriarchy. <laughs> I don't think that there's a silver bullet. There's like not the one way. There are the infinite ways. And it's, uh, I think that questions create space. And I am trying to like uh, really lean um, and like live into this idea that like I actually don't know the answers. My job to make sure that people have a great place to work at Margaret Casey Foundation and can support leaders um, to have the resources they need to do the things that they need to do for our folks. That's on point. You know what? We got a juicy one in the chat box from Shireen Azimi. Um, I hope I pronounced that right, Shireen. Um, here's the catch. Foundation money, money generally comes from business activity, and that activity may not be at all aligned with the mission of the grantees. It may be ages old. Should grantees make demands of funders? Should grantees reject money? I'll take this a step further is, is, um, and share some reflections on this. Um, it, it could be that the money comes from okay activity, but generally um, we understand the source of these resources are, are stolen tax dollars. It's built on the foundation of stolen labor uh, um, of, from black and brown folks. Um, and so we understand the contradictions of the sector and yet we exist, we're still trying to shift resources um, and shift power. That being said, I, I'll, I'll share a reflection from the New York Foundation. We, Shireen, recently had someone get their grant approved by us and then write us and say, actually, we're not gonna accept the grant because we've decided that it is not aligned with our values. We don't have, we're still seeking out additional feedback. Was it our process? Was it a values question? Is that they're no longer taking resources from organized philanthropy? Are they choosing grassroots fundraising as a way to um, maintain their accountability to their communities and not to philanthropy? I don't know. Those are some hunches I have, but I think this is the right question. And it's something right now I've been thinking a lot about Carmen, um, maybe some are referring to, or maybe just me referring to as the Mackenzie Scott effect. As more and more individual donors and communities, whether they're mega wealth donors or communities coming together in small donations and pooling resources like we we're seeing around the uprisings, groups are raising money from non-traditional sources at much higher levels with far fewer restrictions. I'm just gonna drop this here. Could we be irrelevant soon if we don't change our ways? Yeah. Because if it, I think so. And so I think what Shireen is getting at here is, yeah, maybe you should reject the money or make more demands on funders, or maybe we actually are, are gonna um, make our own selves like outdated. And, and when, because other sources are coming in saying, philanthropy's broken, we're gonna do this a different way. Like Mackenzie Scott, no proposal, no questions asked. Of course, the process has some opaque challenges to it and how she approached her giving, but she gave it unrestricted. She gave it multi-year and she gave big. 
yeah. right, in ways that private philanthropy or philanthropy in general, organized philanthropy is not doing. But what do you think to this question? Where, where is the energy, how it should be spent here? What do you think about this potential trend? Yeah, so I am obsessed with the 95%. Like our grant making is like 5.5%. Like we have the strategy, but my obsession is about where we actually invest mm -hmm. the money. It's not even where the money goes to. It's That's how right. our, yeah. our endowment has grown leaps and bounds in the mm -hmm. last 18 months for no other reason than capitalism. Like there's yep. no like logic. We didn't do anything more. We weren't more excellent. And so Dan Gould, who's our chief investment officer, has been on this amazing mm -hmm. journey of uh, hopefully at the end of the year, we'll put this out, but like updating our investment policy statement and getting really, really clear yep. about um, mon what our money enables and what it will no longer be a part of. And so one of the things that we've been looking at is like every single foundation is invested in municipal bonds. It's like an yep. easy way to make money small returns, you're like lending money to cities um, to do, um, this is the good story. This is for comps people. <laughs> money to cities so that they can uh, build schools. Um, what actually happens in most cities is that in city budgets, uh, municipal bonds are the ways that police settlements are paid. When, a, mm -hmm. when an incident yeah. happens with a police officer, a municipal bond, is a way that the city can raise money to pay off a family, to pay off a victim. And we have just said, we wanna actually make sure that our investments aren't actually paying off the debt of police who are hurting our community. That just can't be the case. And are actively working with folks at Acre to understand how do we do this? Like how do we, uh, most foundations will tell you that's impossible, everything is blended up together. And I'm like, nothing is impossible. Like, <laughs> No, it's not impossible. We just have to make a choice about our priorities. And so I agree. I agree with Shireen, Shireen um, in like the question and think that there's like a bigger thing for us to unpack and explore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I know we got five minutes left and there's a good, there's a couple more questions in the chat box. I wonder if you want to try to get to, there's one from Sarah Jimenez. Um, how have you balanced the need and time, uh, the need time assessment to reset or rethink your voice in, in, in the say do gap and continuing the immediate work, whether you're in a foundation or another type of organization? This is sort of, I, I'm alluding to this, but we have just gone through this pretty amazing organizational development process just reflecting on our transition. And people are people are tired at Margaret Casey Foundation. Hmm. We've been going fast. Um, this was not an excellent place to work before I started. And I thought hmm. that I could just um, make things easier and like clear and that that would be enough to, to um, make people feel safe at work. Hmm. And that just is not true. Um, and so I, uh, <laughs> at the end, I'm like, you know, first you're like, I'm so happy everybody can tell me the truth. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> the truth is not what I really want to hear. Mm -hmm. And then it's the third thing, which is to this question, like I have a choice to make. And I, again, I think our greatest contribution is building a just organization. Mm -hmm. And so we're stopping, like we're uh, not making any like new programmatic commitments, no new urgency. We have um, the opportunity to live into uh, Angela Davis's credo of freedom being a constant. Mm -hmm. This fight's going to be here tomorrow, and it's going to be here next month. 
And even when we win, there are going to be people who are going to want to take it away from us. And we uh, should be creating room for people to rest and to reset, for people to reimagine, for people to um, be as good as uh, imagining and naming the future we want as they are as at problematizing the problem, you know? Mm, um, yeah. And so I'm like trying, I'm not great at it. I'm just going to be honest and yeah. I'm practicing. How about you? I mean, it's like, Sarah, thanks for the question. It's like you're in my head right now because I'm, like I said, almost three months in and I'm I grapple with this question all the time, which I think is that tension between the bigger picture vision and strategy and then getting in the weeds and the details of organizational development, the things you're saying around staffing, Carmen, things like, but, but for me, the balance, you know, I, I'm sounding like a broken record, but if if my North Star and my my like, you know, moral compass here for lack of better words is about accountability of the grassroots, like my, I understand that I'm gonna have to walk and chew gum at the same time and figure out what are the details that I need to transform about the foundation in an inclusive and participatory way with our team, staff and board, um, while still moving forward a, a broader vision and strategy. Those things are often in opposition to each other and there are only so many hours in the day. Um, so I don't have a simple answer, Sarah, but to say thanks for asking it. And I'm, I'm just struggle with this every day. And as a new leader of the foundation, um, what I do to balance is going back to my like point that I made earlier is ask questions, mm -hmm. build a culture of giving and receiving feedback with my team where I say, am I prioritizing the right things? I'm still new. I need your guidance. I need you to help me see things that I may not see yet. I don't know what I don't know is right. It's often what they say. Um, and as a leader, that's really important to me. And that I know I'll be able to balance better, like the details versus the big picture. We're a small foundation. I don't have a very big team. I have an awesome team that's a hardworking team. And we have to contribute um, to these kind of day-to-day -day and big picture things together. And the main thing I know that I can't do is do it alone. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for the question, Sarah. Yeah. Um, with that, I am going to wrap us up, Ricky. Uh, thank, thank you, Carmen. Always great talking with you. Yeah, this is like, um, what an amazing, for, for West Coast people, an amazing <laughs> way to start the day. Uh, and thanks to all the folks who asked questions and who joined the panel. Thank you so much to Comnet to, for inviting us to have this conversation. Yeah. And um, we will see you soon. Thank you all. Bye. Bye.